Hello and welcome once again to 101 George Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and I ask you to join me as we take a stroll through the realms of children's literature, storytelling and creative learning. Now, before we crack on with today's show, I would like to say that this podcast was recorded over Zoom. So if you hear any erratic noises, I promise you it's the internet's fault and not my cat's. Well, maybe Odin, but Sirius is a good boy. This week, we'll be discussing the wonders of nature, plants and folklore with Edinburgh-based herbal storyteller Amanda Edmiston. Amanda comes from a strong storytelling tradition as her mother is none other than Jean Edmiston, a highly experienced and respected storyteller based in Dumfries and Galloway. Amanda will be bringing her Botanica Fabula to Mowbray in October as part of Dumfries' Wild Goose Festival. Amanda, what's your favourite children's story? Well, that was a really interesting question and I gave it some thought because um, I think I have one or two stock answers if you like mm. um and so i had a, a we think about what i genuinely really loved as a child and what i still sort of refer back to if you like that had an impact on my childhood and my life and so i i settled on my answer being <laughs> she says from a whole load of choices probably the phoenix in the carpet by um Inez I really liked Inez Bit Books. Mm. Um, I love that mixture of uh, mythological legends, or li- myths and legends, um, those magical creatures centered in stories. And I think she had quite um, a strong influence on my early story storytelling because she, she, meet, she kind of knits together really well um, tiny bits of fact. Uh, folklore and those characters like the phoenix or the dragons that she writes about in the enchanted castle she does uh, greek and uh, greek gods and goddesses and she's got elements of of really well researched facts quite accurately written into a new story Mm. Um, they're all beautifully set but i think the phoenix in the carpet for me stood out because it is almost like a series of adventures. Each chapter stands alone, mm. but they all come together to to form quite a rich tapestry, a, a really um, a picture that's really redolent of the period of history, and then this magical world that the children enter by meeting meeting Miss Phoenix. Mm. So yeah, that was that was probably my my top story. I also was considering saying things like uh, Francis Hodgson Burnett's Secret Garden or mm. um, Little Princess, uh, again, Francis Hodgson Burnett. I think I'm possibly a bit of a fan of the Edwardian era, era. Yeah. <laughs> Victorian yeah. early Edwardian. Um, had a really um, huge appeal to me as a child. and But I still, I still love children and... and young adult literature now in that you know I, I've got by my bedside table um The House on Chicken Legs by Sophie Anderson mm. we, but then again that weaves together this 
this world that combines old fairy stories mm. um, and a magical adventure and is really well researched, but then it creates something new and quite wonderful. I love children's books. I'm a huge Chip Philip Pullman fan too. And so, um, you know, I, I, I threatened to go with Northern Lights, but um, <laughs> I, was, I was also trying to step away from, from obvious answers that mm. I maybe always say when I'm talking to schools and I'm trying to find common ground and, and more recent books that they're familiar with and then lead them down the path to find new things that they maybe hadn't considered exploring before. I think that's really important, particularly when you're talking to younger people, because they're used to books, unless they're well read or unless they've they've had the benefit of being able to be introduced to a library or a librarian. Remember them, um, and they 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 tend to read books that are of their time, and have been published around about the time when when they were young as we did. So when you're talking to them and when they ask things like, what was your favorite children's story? And you come out with a title from the eighties or the seventies or the fifties or even Blighton. Sometimes they look at you with complete blank faces and it's a great opportunity to be able to educate them and go up this story and hopefully introduce them to a story. But at the same yeah. time, Sometimes. Although I wasn't born in Edwardian, Edwardian times, I'm not that old. <laughs> but I'm yeah, I'm absolutely with you there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you can say, um, if you like, uh, if you like Philip Pullman, mm. then you'd probably quite enjoy reading Inesbit because she also writes about this magical, magical journey. And I really like both. Mm. Or you know, they maybe have read modern classics and and books like. Um, you know, Philip Pullman or J.K. Rowling or, yeah, I'm, I'm also thinking of um, the Percy Jackson series, you know, mm. and all those sort of books. I could say to them, if you like those sort of things, try reading Sophie Anderson, who's quite well known, but maybe not as well known, you know, and you can take them in different directions mm. whilst keeping in their comfort zone. I think that is a really valuable thing. And one of the things that we have maybe lost a bit yeah. with the reduction in in libraries and schools mm. and you know not having full-time librarians present who can help guide people yeah. um, with yeah. their reading and i think there's a huge popularity at the moment for full-on fantasy in huge series which some of them are excellent some of them are quite uh, prescriptive and and you know they are following a formula and uh, we also have a huge passion at the moment for, for stark reality. And I think we are, by focusing on that, undervaluing the, the wonder of, of a bit of stepping away from reality, a little bit of, you know, imagination, a little bit of the comfort of, of somewhere different that isn't like the horror you're experiencing outside in the real world, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's a blend, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the 70s and the 80s, early 80s, were fantastic. The, te <laughs> the television output, because I'm just thinking about the, the Nesbitt uh, stories and a lot of the stories like the Railway Children, a lot of them were made into serials for television during the 70s and early 80s. And my particular introduction to that literature was actually through television. And yeah. it was through, the, it was through because it was the 80s for me, the early 80s, it was the repeats of the 70s programmes. Um, so at Edwardian times, the children looked like, kids from the 70s and had long hair and, and you know, 
slightly slightly creepy looking guy dare i say with some of some of the uh, the 70s um shows but but i loved it and then i went back and i started reading those um those books and they were fantastic i i know exactly the ones that were all through the early 80s there was that whole serialization of children's classics as mm. a sunday evening tea time program mm. and you know the box of delights mm-hmm. uh yeah. is uh, is probably one of my favorite examples of that i went out and bought it on box set and my own children now watch it every christmas we have a moment of having to watch the whole of the box of delight but i wouldn't have I was introduced to Inez, but I think they were possibly on my my uh, mum and aunt's shelf from when they were little at my grandparents' house. So when we, I maybe first picked them up there. But certainly those TV adaptations were awesome for introducing people to a different strand of, of literature. And they were really well done and so engaging. Plants, herbs, flowers, nature. They seem to be major influences on your work, Amanda. What is it about the natural world that inspires you in your storytelling? Okay, it's probably easiest if I take you back to where I started. As you've mentioned, my mum's a storyteller. Mm. Um, I spent quite a bit of time when I was little with my grandparents as well, my mum's parents. My grandfather was a sculptor and my grandma was a... Well, my gran was a, a huge huge fan of the garden. My grand spent a lot of time outside gardening and her gardens were always beautiful and she cooked a lot. And um, so I think I grew up with uh, um, a huge awareness of plants. They were just always there. I have a quite plant-focused family. My, my dad was a toy maker and carved and worked with wood a lot as well. My mum as, as you know, as I said, told stories. And so that was kind of my comfort zone. We also spent a lot of time outside when I was little. One, I have a, my first herbal I was bought when I was about five or six and Donald Law's Encyclopedia of Herbs uh, or Herbal Encyclopedia. And I remember actually having my own herb garden, maybe about six or seven, but not just the uh, culinary herbs that a lot of people immediately think of, but, uh, you know, a real fascination with wild plants and um, how they'd been used for medicine before. I think really from about the age of six or seven, I was super aware that those, a lot of those classic fairy stories, like, you know, um, Hans Christian Andersen's version of Wild Swans, which... I think you covered this with Maisie Chan, actually, listening to the podcast you did with her, but talking about how stories um, appear all around the world mm-hmm. and, and there are themes and similar stories. And there is a common thread, if you like, of a girl who weaves nettles to rescue her brothers from enchantment. This crops up in several different stories from different cultures. And I saw quite early on that the medical use and the practical use of those plants appeared in fairy stories and was part of the enchantment and the magic that was being created. So I think that leap probably happened so long ago, I couldn't tell you when. Then I, as an adult, you know, I did what many people do and and messed about with different ideas of what I was going to be when I grew up. And then eventually, <laughs> eventually I got around to doing something vaguely assembling growing up and uh, um, studied herbal medicine. Mm. Um, I 
<laughs> I then, I, I, I had, uh, I fell pregnant with my eldest daughter and um, before I met my lovely husband, I was a single parent with my eldest for a few years and I had to find something to do quite quickly to support me and my daughter. I started sharing stories at a toddler group that I was part of that I went to in a garden, beautiful hidden garden in Glasgow. And we had uh, a really broad range of cultures in the group. I think at one point there were parents and carers and children from something like uh, 18 different countries. And I found that by telling stories about the plants that, that we found common ground, whether it was those fairy stories that crop up from around the world or the uses of the plants. But as soon as you mention it and talk about it, there was a, there was a physical thing. You know, there's a smell of the plant, there's a taste, there's how you cook with it, how you eat it, and the fact that it appears in these fairy stories. And so I kind of had a... a, a revelation if you like and realized that this was something that just made a lot of people really comfortable and really happy and really interested and even if they weren't plant people you know they're not already aware of it you can you can't help but smell you know uh, rosemary and immediately uh, it will remind you of the flavor of food or it will remind you of being in a certain place at a certain time if you say, you know, Rosemary's for remembrance, which, you know, is a light, is, is Hamlet, but um, it's, it also is used as a, as a herb to help the memory. And so if you start to explain to people that these little snippets of information in stories are quite often real and relate to herbal medicine, a huge number of people find that interesting. And I just kind of felt like I'd come home. I felt like I'd discovered something that I'd maybe always been doing, but I'd suddenly found a way of making it something that I could work with, share with other people and they enjoyed, and it brought people together. So I think what you've touched on there is that I'm doing something slightly different to a lot of people. There are some incredible storytellers who work with stories of the natural environment. I do something ever so slightly different in that I am I'm, I'm pinpointing the the uses we have across you know from all different cultures but sometimes I'm working specifically with herbs from Scotland. It depends on what I'm working with, project where I am and sometimes I'm connecting people in different places up with it but um, I, I'm really tuning in to what the real use of the plants is uh, and a bit of the science behind it as well. It's also, it strikes me, and maybe you agree or disagree with this, but the wonderful things about herbalism and plants in general is that it's magic. It's accessible, yeah. real magic. Yeah. And I, I suppose as a storyteller, if you're combining herbalism and plants with the stories and exploring the plants' significance in those stories and vice versa, you're introducing an audience to the real magic of herbalism and of plants and that it's that they that anyone can relate to you know we see plants everywhere and yeah. we grew up with this but because we're so used with particularly medicine being packaged and being kind of a, you, know, you get it from a pharmacist and that medicine but when you start talking about actually there's things growing everywhere and yeah. they, all, they, they all have an effect and that effect is kind of strange and it's been known about for years and years and years but at the same time it's real it is magic and I've, um you know and 
I take it uh, a bit further in, I introduced some of the research I did when I was studying herbal medicine mm. that connects not only the traditional and folk uses, but with modern scientific research. So for example, if I'm, I'm sharing our story about um, a phoenix, let's say we started with a phoenix earlier. And one of my favorite stories about a phoenix um, that goes back to ancient Egypt and the phoenix builds its nest from aromatic bark and branches and, and twigs and roots and then it built, makes an egg out of tree resin and the resins it uses in the story are frankincense and myrrh. Now frankincense and myrrh crop up in another famous story about someone who's rather prone to rebirth. Um, yes they do. <laughs> Yeah, a little while later on. But um, the, the current research going on into myrrh in particular um, is because of its ability to eliminate cells that are maybe not a lot functioning properly or, you know, have, have problems and it encourages growth of healthy cells. Frankincense, if you walk into the a toiletry area or the dressing table of any woman of a certain age, you will probably find face cream with frankincense in it because frankincense is incredible for uh, its anti-aging properties and its ability to renew cells. And yet there's this story, you know, and that's what the recurrent medical research on frankincense and myrrh is its ability to renew and and, and allow fresh cells to develop. And yet that's a story that's written about a phoenix that's over 5,000 years old. If I was an audience member listening to that, that story, I would immediately think, hang on, there's a thread there. There's a possible thread there linking these stories. You have that one, I suppose you have that one wonderful moment where you can see in the audience member, they kind of, they make that leap yeah. and they think, ah, hang on. <laughs> now hang on. <laughs> exactly. And I yeah. mean, you know, Pre-COVID, pre what I would do um, when we were handing things freely around an audience is I would take um, a, a little box. I, my grandfather brought me back from Egypt as a child with a, with a tiny phoenix-like figure on the top of it. And in it, I've got myrrh resin. And myrrh is, you know, you can chew it like, like chewing gum. Um, and it's extraordinary. Children won't necessarily eat green vegetables, but they will chew, chew really weird things that have come off a tree. If someone tells them a story and says they can eat it, they will, all of them, say, can I eat this? You know, and I've had parents say, I can't get them to eat anything. You know, they, they won't eat a biscuit they've never seen before, let alone, you know, you've just handed them round a box that you've said is really, really old with some unknown tree resin in it. And they're all like, can I eat this? And I'm like, yeah, go for it, eat it, it's fine. And they'll all try it. And so you do, you, you watch people experience that taste and on a very subtle level, probably experience what the herb does to you. Whilst hearing that story, and yes, you do, you have that, you, you do see with audiences, they quite often get really excited because the penny has dropped. Yeah. And then I say to them, you know, we were telling stories probably from you know before we had language stories were being shared in some form or language as we know it now um stories were being shared and those stories had facts in them because it's easier in pre-literate times if you imagine being told a story you will remember what happens in the story mm. um and that's still much much easier for people to grasp than reading a lengthy scientific paper telling you about the you know the, the the minute detailed scientific research into plant constituents but you will remember 
you know, that I told you that if you eat nettle seeds, you probably will manage to stay up all night weaving jaggy nettles into shirts. Or, you know, if you, <laughs> if you make yourself an egg out of myrrh, you never know what might happen. You might renew yourself and live for another 500 years, but I'm not making any promises. But people <laughs> like it. <laughs> Do you have a favourite plant and why? Okay, so I usually... Um, off the top of my head, I will nearly always answer that question by saying St. John's wort. Um, Hypericum perforatum, or Chase the Devil as it's also known. It's got a really long history, particularly in Scotland, of being used in medicine uh, as a wound healer, which mm. is not one we use to, that um, allopathic medicine uses so much. Um, but of course, a lot of people are familiar with it now because you'll find it on the counter in any pharmacist as an antidepressant or extracts of it used as an antidepressant. But um, it was traditionally used quite often as, um, as a wound dressing. It was also used a really good antiviral, actually, um, which is quite a good one in, in, the, in the current climate. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for example, I, I took my, my younger daughter my partner and I were out with our young one the other day and she fell off a scooter and, and broke her knee open as you do when you sit. And, um, she said, Oh, she was crying. She couldn't carry on the walk. We had a couple of miles to get home. Uh, and the St. John's walk there. Now it's fascinating for children because when you squeeze the yellow buds, I worked with a fantastic herbalist, uh, told stories at an event she was delivering years ago called Rosemary Gladstar, an American herbalist. And she said, you can tell when it's ready because if you squeeze the flowers, they come out as purple or dark, dark red. And so it's quite visually exciting because you, you, they are yellow. There's no hint of red or purple about them. But when you squeeze them, this purple juice comes out. And if you apply that to a wound, it really quite quickly makes it feel better. So by the time I, I force fed her yellow flowers and squeezed purpleiness all over her knee, wrapped it up with a bit of plantain, and she carried on wailing for a few a few minutes and then actually after a while went, Mummy, that feels better. Mm. It's got layers to it again. I like layers of things. The visual sort of just the aesthetic of this purple ooze coming out of this plant is lovely. And it's got these fantastic stories about um, Satan having to uh, stabbing the plant because he's so angry with it it's a it's a bit of folklore that i embellish in in a story i wrote um because he's so angry with it and it bleeds with the blood of john baptist and and it heals the plant uh, that so that's a, that's usually what i say is my favorite but i have to confess i'm massively keen on yarrow as well mm. and that's another story goes way way back because it was gifted to Achilles by Chiron the centaur to help him heal his injuries on the battlefield you know because you will know but the audience may not that Achilles is born half mortal half god and his mother tries his goddess mother tries to balance it all out by dunking him in the river Styx and plunges him in head first mm. uh, and she's gonna of course being a sensible woman turn him around and do the other end as well but doesn't, and the bit she held on to him around the ankles, his Achilles heel and left mm. as this vulnerable point, which is interrupted by an army, and um, she never quite finishes the job. And Chiron, the centaur, tries to make up for this by giving him Yarrow, which has the Latin name Achillea, um, after Achilles. It's fab. I love Achilles. We'd be here for hours. I'm really keen <laughs> on things like dandelions and nettles as well, you mm. know. Um, but I like, I like a bit of a wild 
slightly um, a plant that can't be conquered. So things like yarrow and St. John's wort, dandelions and nettles, people moan about them a lot. They like getting rid of them in the garden because they, they, they're, they're quite aggressive. They will grow anywhere. Mm. I really love their ability to grow anywhere. You know, um, I, I'm, I love gardens. I'm not the most hardworking gardener. I quite like something that you put in and it gets on with it. I, I admire its resilience mm. and its ability to adapt. I'm like, yes, you go do your thing over there. That works. Um, and then I can go and do something interesting with it later on. So those sort of plants. It's actually, I'm, I'm digressing here, but your story regarding your daughter hurting herself, it reminds me, as I said, um, perhaps when, before we started recording, that my mum was, is an amateur herbalist. And I, when I was a spotty teenager, she used to make me rub garlic on my face, which was fantastic because, you know, I, I, I didn't have any spots on me. And I thought, okay, I could, I could get a girlfriend, but I stank <laughs> of garlic. I, I spent I spent about a good three years walking around high school smelling of garlic. I was so popular. Fantastic, <laughs> but I bet it didn't. But as you say, you weren't, you didn't get spots because so it clearly worked. Although, exactly. You know, also you must have really um, robust skin because it can be a little bit. It can be a bit uh, burning. Do you know what I mean? It depends. Some people don't find it burning at all and find it really quite easy to apply to the skin, but some people dislike it. One of my favourite tricks, speaking of weird things we do to our children with plants when you're a, when you're a herbalist, is having really cold feet. And I remember walking around Glasgow during really heavy snow at one point um, with the older one when she was little. And I was, you know, honestly, the amount of time I spend making my children walk miles in uncomfortable circumstances, it seems to be a theme, but she had really cold feet. And we dropped into um, a grocer's down in, in um, Pollock Shields and got a big bag of chili flakes and put them inside her wellies under her socks. And that works a treat, but sort of slightly... Um, bizarre and eccentric things that your mother does or your parents do when, they, when they're aware of plants. Works every time now, ever, ever get really cold feet, garlic, so chilli socks, mm. the way to go. <laughs> Not directly on the skin, under the socks. <laughs> I will remember that, I will remember that. Uh, would you describe yourself as a traditional storyteller? Uh, that's been a really um, tough call over the years. As a question to answer, I find that one difficult because I'm not exactly. The answer I have settled on in the last year or so is that I'm not, mm. but I combine folklore, facts, history, uses of plants, all kinds of different aspects, and I combine them using traditional storytelling techniques. Most of my work has a tradition so when i'm doing a performance piece or an interactive storytelling session or a workshop you'll get all sorts of other things but somewhere in there will be the story and i will tell the story but i think it's a little bit of a stretch to say i'm a traditional storyteller i was i was um my mum has spent a long time and still does helping and, and coaching me through those niggles and questions that we have or just you know we're great uh we're great at sharing ideas and talking through what we want to do and reflecting on each other's practice but I also was mentored by Jess Smith 
who you will have heard of is a, a Scottish traveller and has been a storyteller for a long time and author. And Jess made me more aware of how powerful some of the more traditional storytelling techniques could be. So I think I've come, I have used, I started off maybe using more, being more of a traditional storyteller and then I found my own way. I came back to it for, for a little while. Or I, I, adapt, I found techniques from traditional storytelling that I hadn't thought of before mm. that I applied from what I did when I was working with Jess. And it all grows into your own thing. I usually say when I'm working with venues, I can do traditional storytelling. <laughs> I can just drop in and tell a story in the way that storytellers do. But um, it, it's it's really not what you're booking me for, if you, if you see what I mean. you don't. That's not what people get me in to do. They get me in to do the other thing where there's this sort of build-up of layers of stuff that is that is my herbal storytelling practice. I take it then that the audience and interacting with the audience or at least developing that relationship with the audience is, is, is an important element in your storytelling a, practice. A lot of conversation goes on. There's always quite a lot of Q&A afterwards even if it's not planned for people will will stay back because they want to chat about something or mm. or tell me some fantastic quirky story about their mum putting garlic on their face when they were little um <laughs> and uh, ask me if this is true if this if this works or you know I, I don't know all sorts of things so the, the conversation that grows from working with an audience is really important I also do quite a lot of sessions where people make up some of the the remedies that are involved in the story or come out of the story we have I do quite a lot of sessions where people create visual art as a response to the story or using the plants mm. so I, I use a lot of um, visual art little I don't know workshoppy pieces there's a lot of a lot of um, multi-dimensional stuff goes on so people often do quite a lot of different things and there's an awful lot of I don't I don't so I don't tend to do a lot of the traditional techniques like call and response or singing very often occasionally I've been known to break into song but not too often try and avoid it uh, it's not my comfort zone but I am more likely to get everyone to taste something peculiar mm. or uh, mix something strange or smell something or, or come and help make something so yeah a lot of that goes on in the audience is really important I think every one of those stories that, that somebody tells me usually comes through the thread and comes out somewhere else at a later session do you know what I mean it all it all weaves together <laughs> you're due to appear at Mowbray as part of the Wild Goose Festival this October what can we expect from you I'm really looking forward to it actually John um it's going to be an interesting one because it's going to be a session that has to refer to, to where we are with the COVID-19 situation. Yeah. I'm adapting work at the moment to keep that sense of audience engagement and being able to experience the plants I'm talking about, but being aware of, of you know, how we, how we prevent increased risks of infection. So that's still very much in the uh, sort of research and development phase, shall we say. But I think what I'm looking forward to is I've, I've, I've read about the wild goose migration. And I think what's quite interesting is, is how 
their path follows places where similar plants grow, same, the same stories crop up, albeit with different cultural tweaks and changes. And so I'm hoping to be able to share some stories about plants that the geese pass and how they're used um, in the cultures along the, the migra migratory route. Um, it's going to be interesting. There are a couple of new stories I'm hoping to share that I haven't told before and new ways of interacting, but that I'm keeping under wraps until we know a little bit more about how the situation is going to work. <laughs> Can't wait. And the final question, Amanda, are you currently working on any projects or future projects at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I've been quite busy. I had um, a lot of a lot of work was cancelled. Quite a bit of my work then changed how it was to be delivered and went online during lockdown. I'm still creating a lot of work online because I think people are wary of, of getting out and about too much still. But the two projects I've mainly been focused on for the last, well, one of them has been going on for 18 months and that's the Very Curious Herbal Project. Now that starts, life um where well it started life when i when i discovered a, a book published in 1737 by elizabeth blackwell it's the first herbal to be published by a woman and she draws and writes about 500 different plants they're plants from all over the world and so as part of the project i've used her book as a point of inspiration i i then take the plants and look at the history the insights the uses and the traditional stories surrounding them that is now a podcast but there's online sessions and the, there are sessions coming up in the new year it's back on tour again hopefully i will get back down to london and the british library this time without any more <laughs> any any more nasty viruses stopping me um and the other thing i've been working on for a while is a project called The Kissed in Time. Now, I, I first developed that a couple of years ago and it worked intergenerationally with schools and old, older people in the communities and um, material on Tovar and Dalkus, which is a fantastic digital resource with um, memories from across Scotland recorded for quite a long period of time. But I've been extracting the plant material or the plant stories from over and then sharing them with people gathering local reminiscence as about plants and how they were used sharing them in schools and then the schools created art in response to the stories and we worked on remedies now last time that went to the national museum of scotland it toured as an exhibition of the work um alongside the workshops and the stories went down to the ashmolean in oxford and um uh, the storytelling centre round and about. We went all over, um, but then I got some funding to create new chapters for the Kiss in Time. So I've been doing that a little bit online, but it all sets up again in real life this autumn. So there are new stories from the Kiss in Time, new stories from the Curious, Very Curious Herbal Project. Um, I also work as part of a collective called the Tyveshire Collective. So we're organising a, a big or curating a, um, an event two-day event in edinburgh in january there's a lot going on <laughs> i'm writing and all these stories are coming together and hopefully come out next year i think the plan is for them to actually to be released as a book but you know i'm not i'm not uh, tempting fate on that one because mm. their plans have been changing uh, by the week 
during COVID. But yeah, lots of exciting things going on. Well, if there's anything that we can do with Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling, please, by all means, let us know and we'd be happy to help. Fantastic. And it's been so lovely talking to you. Really looking forward to coming down in October. It's going to be awesome. Amanda, thank you so much for appearing on today's show. It's been fantastic. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's been lovely speaking to you, John. It's been really interesting. And thanks for inviting me along. Anytime.